You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. Yo, yo, what's up, Eurosimos? What's up, Joel? How you doing? <laughs> How you doing, man? Good. I hope everyone liked our fresh new uh, intro. Yeah, brand new intro, brand new duration. You know, we're mixing it up for you guys. Um, Ralph Ellis returns. And uh, this time, he believes he's found Adam and Eve in history. Right before we get to that, hereforthetruth.com, as always, all our previous episodes can be discovered there. We highly recommend watching Ralph's first episode, episode 49, um, before venturing down this rabbit hole. Um, grab some merch if you feel inclined, subscribe to our mailing list to keep in touch with all future episode releases. Join our Telegram community at Are You Here for the Truth? And that's pretty much it. Guys, also one thing, if you're watching this um, on our website or on YouTube, the visual is going to be a little bit different. We had some internet issues, so um, we're using another recording of this podcast. So it's in, it's in speak of you. So you'll be seeing a, a lot of Ralph, a lot less of us. You know, that's not a big deal, but just wanted to let you guys know anyway. And we'll bring on Ralph. All right, everybody. Let's welcome the return of Ralph Ellis back to Here for the Truth. Now, Ralph doesn't know this yet, but you are our most viewed episode of all time, Ralph. <laughs> okay. And most listened to as well. And most listened to, yeah, yeah, that's right. No, I didn't know that. I wasn't following. Well, that's good news. Mm. Yeah, def- definitely. Um, for those looking for an introduction to Ralph, please check out our previous episode with Ralph on the real history of um, the biblical stories and the real Jesus. And you'll get a nice little intro to Ralph and who Ralph is. But today we're we're diving deeper into some other familiar biblical characters, I believe. Um, just before I get into that, though, Ralph, you're quite the man of controversy on, on Facebook these days, I've noticed. <laughs> yes, a little bit. <laughs> I, I was, uh, yes, I was defending um, poor old uh, Dr. Robert uh, Price, who got kicked off a um, uh, an a YouTube site. I thought it was a little bit uh, unnecessary. That's you, you don't need to do that. He got kicked off for his political views, not for what he was saying about religion. Uh, and I think that's unnecessary. I still go with the uh, freedom of speech, which I think we should have. Um, and so I defended um, Dr. Price um, because I think he's a he's a font of knowledge. He knows more about biblical. Um, literature i think than anybody else in the world at, at present time um whether he has the correct interpretations well that's up to you um but generally he's fairly reasonable in his interpretations of what um, um happened at those times he's generally a mythicist so he's looking at the mythicist story that um most of this story was made up from previous literature you know roman and greek literature and so on um I differ from that a little bit, of course, because I say there's a lot of historical truth within the mythology. Um, as ever, with all of the mythologies I've looked at, there's always a kernel of truth within the mythology. Um, so we, we disagree on that, but you know that's that's academia. That's um, 
that's research. You're not going to get everybody to agree. Um, mm. If you did, there would be no well, valid research God. if everybody agreed. And so, yeah. God, God forbid people disagree with each other, Ralph. Sorry, say again. What? God forbid people disagree. <laughs> we're kind yes. of, we're you're cutting not allowed, out a bit here. You're not allowed to at present. Yes, in the in the current political climate, you're not allowed to disagree. Yeah, people get kicked off time and time again. I've been railing against that. You know, whether it's you know medical matters or political matters or even religious matters, people are being kicked off um, platforms because they said the wrong thing. And I don't think that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we should have a little bit more discretion that if you don't like what someone is saying or disagree with it, well, you know, you have the off button if you want. You know, you can turn it off. You don't have to listen to them. Um, I think we should be able to make up our own minds. We're what adults. Do you... Yeah, I agree with you. And I know we'll get into the, the subject of Adam and Eve, but I'm curious, why do you think this whole cancel culture and and the censorship and everything is is seems to be on steroids these days. <laughs> uh, do you do you want the easy answer or the um, uh, non PC answer? Um, it's it's basically <laughs> a continuation of it's a continuation of Marxism. Um, Marxism for centuries has been trying to take us into a, a communist type society, and they tried it all the way during the, the 20th century with, um, with class warfare, um, setting the classes against each other, you know, workers arise and, you know, unburden yourself from your, um, from your masters and bosses. And that sort of worked, well, it worked in Russia, um, but it didn't work in the West because the common man was too wealthy. Why would you want to have um, an uprising, you know, a revolt against the masters when you're actually fairly comfortable yourself? You know, you've got your own car, your house, you have two holidays a year, whatever it happens to be. Um, you're comfortable. You don't want to start a revolution. And so the revolution, the class warfare uh, never worked in the West. And so now they've just gone back to having um, divisions from uh, via race and uh, uh, divisions, what's the other big division they keep on about? Um, it's basically divide and rule. If you, if you can divide society along various lines, um, whether it's class, race, or whatever they want to do, um, you can divide society and start a revolution, and, and, and uh, you can rule by default, having set the people against each other. And I think that's basically what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I want to touch on um, before we dive into the main subject here of Adam and Eve is there seems to be like certain portions of conspiracy culture or truth culture where there's just this, they, they easily write off all history beyond 100 or 200 years ago. How can we know anything? How can we discern anything? Um, you know, this apparent rapid influx of technology only the last hundred years, the whole Tartaria mud flood theory. These are a lot of the, some of the comments that were coming through on, on, on the last episode as well. Just wondering if you could address that on, on any level. Yeah, it's, it's been difficult. We have a lot more information at our fingertips. And of course the mythicists uh, gained ground because they were beginning to question the texts, um, no longer being literalists and just taking the text at face value, which you know has happened for hundreds of years, began to ask questions. 
and were unable to get any answers. And because of this, they invented mythicism because they couldn't find the uh, history in the real historical record. And so your, your only conclusion is that this did not exist, that it was made up, it was mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think they were researching without opening their eyes. Now, the, the history of the New Testament that we were looking at was actually very, very, very difficult to pass. I mean, that took me 20 years to find the, um, the core of that story, that mythology, and prove it was more history than it was mythology. Um, but with this, some of the stuff we're going to talk about now, this is fairly obvious. And I, I still don't know why people cannot see it. Um, you know, things like the, uh, the Exodus story. It's so obvious that the Exodus story is, is the history of the Hyksos people and their exodus out of Egypt. It's untrue. So why cannot people see that truth within you know, the biblical text, that these two Exodus stories are exactly the same? Uh, did we go through the Exodus in the last? Um, we did, yes. We, we yeah, we did. That. But it yeah. is so obvious that we have two Exodus stories that are identical apart from being about 300 years displaced uh, in the chronology. So why cannot... Well, we know why theologians don't want to do that, but why can't historians, uh, especially um, uh, historians who are looking into the mythology, why can they not see it? Um, So they're looking for any evidence that might, you know, uh, prove that the Exodus story happened, and then they gloss over the Hyksos Exodus and don't even mention it. And you think, well, that's a bit strange. Um, they're missing the obvious data that's right before their noses, and then saying it's all mythology. Well, it's only mythology because you've missed out half the story. You know? um, and mm. the same with the Adam and Eve story, but that's harder again to pass. Um, and get to the truth of what's behind the um, Genesis story, because even I didn't attack that at first, because it was it was obviously myth- mythological, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you're talking right at the very beginning of the biblical story. It's supposed to be a creation story, and we we all know that the creation story is incorrect. That's not how the world was created. So therefore, it has to be mythology. I mean, that's an obvious one. The fact that I found history within it was a bit of a surprise to myself as well. Um, so I didn't look at this for ages, for maybe 10 years or so. Um, I, I was looking at the, you know, the united monarchy of David and Solomon. I was looking at uh, the Exodus story and all of that uh, connections with history. And we've, we've looked at that and we've seen there's a lot of history there. Um, but when I was doing all of that, of course, I had to research uh, all of Egyptian history and the uh, history of uh, the Amarna dynasty of Akhenaten and uh, Nefertiti. And I kept coming across familiar little snippets of history. Yeah. And that's what's got me interested in the Adam and Eve story. All right. Well, the real history of Adam and Eve. We, 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 with Ralph Ellis, I'm incredibly in, intrigued as to what's going to be extrapolated in, in this conversation. So 
most of our listeners, and I guess it's within the, the the collective psyche on some level, is very familiar with the the Adam and Eve story. Um, what, what what's come to pass for you, and and what what can you enlighten us with? Yeah, well, um, probably actually quite surprising if you're just used to the standard um, Adam and Eve story. Uh, this might be rather shocking to some people. I don't know. Um, I think it's a piece of history that's been displaced from where it should be. Mm -hmm. um, and we get uh, the idea of this from, well, from the description of, uh, of Eden itself. So if you go to Genesis 2.10, it says, um, what does it say? It says, a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and it became four heads um, or branches. So you have a river that runs through a garden and then is divided into four branches. Well, there is only one river in this sort of region that does that, and that's the River Nile. You know, it runs through the Garden of Egypt, which is a, you know, a strip oasis all the way through Egypt. It gets to uh, Cairo uh, or Giza, you might say, and it splits into four branches. Well, it doesn't now. It only splits into two. But, you know, in history, it used to split into four. And so we have the, you know, the four rivers of, of uh, Eden, which were the Pison, the Gihon, the Chikadel, and the Parath. Um, and that's sort of pointing us towards Egypt, not towards Mesopotamia, where everyone is looking for the um, Adam and Eve story. I don't know why everything became focused on Mesopotamia. I think maybe it's because that the, the people who wrote this story, the Israelites, the Jews, don't really want you to know what this story is referring to because it is not the story that they've told you and therefore they have to avert your eyes you know look over here you know at this glittering little bauble over here in mesopotamia don't look in, in egypt whatever you do don't look over there um, so we're looking into egypt and we end up with you know the two naked lovebirds in the garden of eden so um what does it say about that it says uh, God planted a garden eastwards in Eden. Eastwards in Eden. That's interesting. Uh, and there he put a man who he had formed, and they were both, um, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay, so now where, if we're looking into Egypt, where in Egypt, eastwards in Egypt? would you find a naked man and woman who were very famous? It's Akhenaten and Nefertiti. <laughs> so forever, if you look at the artwork from Amarna, and of course, re remember that Amarna is on the east bank of the Nile. That's important. So it's eastward in Eden. Um, we have a very famous man and woman, king and queen, who are always naked. And that must have been probably, I don't know, probably quite shocking to the Egyptians as much as it would be uh, shocking to us. It's like, you know, um, having a um, celebration in Britain and Queen Elizabeth II and her husband comes onto the balcony of uh, Buckingham Palace naked. 
it would be sort of shocking. And they were doing that. They weren't just strolling around uh, Amarna naked. They would actually come to the window of appearances, which is the equivalent of, you know, the balcony of Buckingham Palace. And they would give out awards uh, to their people naked. And, and what so was the we, reason? Like, were they just a couple, a couple of hippies? <clears throat> yeah. They were a couple of hippies, and we'll we'll come into this in a minute, actually, because there's a film about it, which is is very interesting. Yeah, they were a couple of uh, of hippies. They were the original 1960s flower power hippies who set up a commune uh, in Middle Egypt. Because remember, I, I don't know if people uh, know the history of uh, Akhenaten, but he got thrown out of of northern Egypt. Um, he was the son, of course, of the king. Uh, Amenhotep III, and he had this vision of starting up this new cult. He was the first monotheist, so he he disregarded all of the gods of Egypt. He said there was only one god who was called the Aten, uh, and because of his contention and the number of people he managed to gather around him, his little cult, um, his father threw him out of Egypt. <clears throat> well, out of Egypt proper. So he got thrown out of Egypt and went down to Amarna on the east bank of the Nile, which is important, we'll come to that again, and set up his own commune. So literally he was a hippie in a new commune where they had to make their own uh, new city and their new palace and temple and whatever to their new monotheistic god, the Aten. And... Of course, then we start to see all of these um, similarities between this and the Genesis-type story because um, the, the god that he venerated was called the Arden or the Arden. Sometimes it's called the Ardon with a D. Uh, and then you look into the biblical texts and you find that the Israelite god has four or five names. He is... Um, Yahweh, of course, he's Elohim, uh, Elah, which became the Arabic Allah, of course. It's again, it's the same God. Uh, Shaddai, uh, and of course, he was called Adon. So mm. the God of the Israelites has the same name as the God of Akhenaten. It's the same God. It's the same religion, and it's monotheistic, of course. You know, Abraham and uh, Moses and uh, Aaron set up a monotheistic religion with their god being the Aden. And that's exactly what Akhenaten did. And now we have this similarity between the two lovebirds in, in Eden um, being the two naked lovebirds of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Can I ask you this question similar? quickly? Sorry, say again. Can I ask you this question quickly? Where, yeah. where, did, where did this God come from in, in, initially? How did they come to venerate this particular God? Uh, well, he's a manifestation of the sun God. Nobody quite knows exactly what the Artanos is, um, but he's a, they say he's not the sun God itself, but a manifestation of the power behind the sun God. And so he was worshipped effectively uh, as the sun god, the rays, the warming rays mm -hmm. of the sun, which made the world. You know, even they knew at that time that the sun was the the primary 
uh, provider of life. Without the sun, there was no life. They used to prove this by putting uh, Osiris beds in, in tombs. <clears throat> an, an Osiris bed is, is a, uh, a piece of wood or uh, a piece of uh, um, brick made in the shape of Osiris, and you fill it with seeds, and it grows in the shape of Osiris. Uh, because Osiris was the god of, you know, life and regeneration. And of course, if you do that in the sunshine, you get green shoots. But if you do it in a tomb, they're white and they die. So without sunlight, they knew that all life would die. And that's why it was a symbol of Osiris to have these Osiris beds. And so the sun was one of the primary um gods to venerate because the sun provided all life uh and we'll see how that <clears throat> played out later so what we have well oh a, another similarity before we go on we have the uh, the tree of life um we have this strange story about you know a tree that you're not supposed to eat the fruits from and again, it just seems mythological because it doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense. Why would God give you a tree and then not allow you to eat the fruits from the tree? Uh, well, the answer is to be found at Karnak. So if you go down to Karnak and have a look at the, um, the Karnak temple, not the other one, uh, you will see the tree of life down there. And it's, it's a physical tree. Well, physical tree. It's, it's, it's a carving of a tree. And it's a tree of, um, it's a family tree. It's a tree of remembrance. So you, you've got this big tree and Thoth, the, the god of writing <clears throat> and record keeping, he is writing the names of the pharaohs on the fruits of the tree and hanging them on the tree. And Seti the first, he is looking at those fruits and every fruit has his name on it, of course. Mm. So it's, it's a family tree. It's exactly the, the same as you'll see if you go around some of the big houses, the um, aristocratic houses in Britain, where they would actually draw this on a wall and they'll have a big tree with all the family members of that particular family um, sitting there as fruits on the trees. That is the tree of life. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a family tree. And of course, you can't pluck the fruits from that tree because you're taking pharaohs and uh destroying the history of pharaohs if you take their name away from this tree and that's why you were not allowed to take the fruits from that particular tree um so it does make sense oh. if you look at it in historical terms and so what we have is akhenaten down here in the new city he created on the east bank of, of the Nile. And effectively, this is, if it's difficult for people to visualize what actually happened at this time, we actually have a video of it, which is really good. Um, a video of it happening at the time, which is a bit strange. But what I'm talking about here is um, the establishment of the Ranjish community in America. I don't know if you remember this. Um, the Ranjish, mm -hmm. they came out of uh, India. They got thrown out of India. Yeah, Osho. What? Wild, wild country. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, yeah, it's on I think, Netflix. I think we, yeah, I think um, we may have touched upon it a little bit in the last interview. I think so. Yeah, we did. So I won't go through it very much. But anyway, you've, you've got this um, cult that came out of India and set themselves up in, in Oregon somewhere. And their history of setting up this new hippie community in Oregon is exactly the same as the establishment of the, um, uh, of the city of Amarna by Akhenaten. And that gives you a very good idea of what they were doing. So you have this charismatic leader who, who gets his people together. They have this new monotheistic religion, worshipping the Aten. And they have to set up this new community on the east bank of the Nile uh, down in Middle Egypt. And as I said, their god was called the Aten. It's the same as the, um, uh, same as the Israelite god. So it's not so surprising that when you read the um, Old Testament, you find so many links to the Amarna dynasty. And one of the famous ones, which it won't be taught um, by theologians, but it's certainly taught within, within history. This is not my discovery. This has been known for hundreds of years, that uh, Psalm 104 is the same as the hymn to the Artem. So the hymn to the Aten was a, uh, a hymn made by, apparently made by Akhenaten himself, um, which I think was probably sung at the dawn of the, each new day, because it's a celebration of the dawning of a new day. But when you go through it and you read the hymn to the Aten, <clears throat> it reads as the Genesis story. So the Genesis story is supposed to be, you know, the creation of the whole world. But if you look at it in a slightly different light, um, <coughs> it's actually the celebration of a dawn of a new day. And so the birds, you know, they arise, the sun comes up over the horizon, it warms the land, the, um, the birds awake and they stretch their wings and so on they're not being created, they're just celebrating the birth of a new day. And so if we look at uh, Psalm 104, mm. um, we, we find some, you know, glaring similarities. So the hymn to the Aten will say, um, how many, it's talking about God. So where it says you, it's talking about the, the Aten himself. Um, and it says, how many are your deeds? You made the earth as you wished. You alone, all the peoples, herds, and flocks. And then you go to the psalm, and it says, Yahweh, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then the hymn says, when you, um, the Aten, set in the western light land, earth is in darkness as if in death. And the psalm says, you make the darkness, and it is night when all of the animals of the forest come creeping out. And the hymn says, every lion comes from his den. And the psalm says, young lions roar for their prey. Uh, when the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. And the hymn says, when you have dawned, they live, and when you set, they die. Talking about the sun of, uh, again, of course. 
And the psalm says, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die. And the hymn says, you set every man in his place. You supply their needs. Everyone has his food. And the hymn says, uh, men all look to you to give them their food in due season. Their entire land sets out to work. And the hymn says, sorry, uh, the psalm says, people go out to their work and to their labor until the evening. The hymn says, the fish in the river dart before you, your razor in the midst of the sea. And psalm says, yonder is the sea, great and wide, creeping things innumerable they are. Um, the hymn says, birds fly from their nests, their wings greeting your car, the soul of the sun. And the uh, hymn says, by the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. And it goes on and on. So we have all of these similarities between Psalm 104 and the hymn to the Artem, which tells us that the authors of the uh, biblical text were familiar with the hymn to the Artem by Akhenaten mm -hmm. himself. So we have direct proof that a lot of the information, a lot of the history that went into the Old Testament came from Akhenaten, and it came from Amarna, this new city they set up on the east bank of the Nile. Um, and we have so many similarities. You know, they were both monotheists, the first of the monotheists. Um, they both fought against bull worshippers. Remember, Moses killed. 3,000 bull worshippers on the Exodus. Um, they both had a garden called the Eden or the Aten, because remember the Eden, um, the god of Akhenaten was called the Aten, but the Aten is actually spelt with the reed glyph, and the reed glyph is more of an E than it is an A. So it's not the Aten as we normally um, pronounce it, it's more the Eaton, Eaton. the Eden, mm. and it's the Garden of the Eaton. Now, where would we find a garden of the god Eaton or Aten? Well, you, you've got two possibilities. I mean, the whole of the Nile itself is a strip oasis. It's a garden of this god, which is Egypt. But also, all of the pharaohs, including uh, Akhenaten, they used to make a garden to the god, which was a walled garden, which uh, in, in Persia, it's called a paradise, which is where our word comes from for a paradise. It's a walled garden to the god, full of all of the, you know, the trees and animals um, of God's creation. And that was the garden of the Aten, the garden of the Eton, garden of Eden. and. Akhenaten had one of those uh, gardens down at Amarna. He made one of those gardens. Um, so both had a city on the east bank of the Nile. We'll have a look at that in a minute. Both uh, were forced to make mud bricks to Pharaoh. And now we're coming back into the Exodus story. So what I'm saying here is, is that Akhenaten and Nefertiti had... Um, two starring roles within the Old Testament. They had this initial um, 
mention in the Genesis story because someone someone had this uh, hymn to the Arten, and they were looking at this hymn to the Arten. And it, it, it sort of it sort of looked like a um, uh, a creation epic. And where do you put a creation epic? Well, you stick it at the front of your book. So it became Genesis. But re in reality, Akhenaten is more connected with the Exodus story than he is with, with Genesis. And so we had this story of the Israelites um, having to make mud bricks for Pharaoh from the book of Exodus. Well, that's exactly what Akhenaten was doing to his people uh, in Amarna. He was kicked out by his father. He went to the east bank of the Nile and he set up a new uh, commune there, making his own city and his own palace and his own temples. And of course, he had to goad his people into making all of these new structures. They had to make mud, mud bricks and they had to make mud bricks whether they had straw or no straw. It is the Exodus story. So when they are saying, you know, Pharaoh is saying to the Israelites, you are idle, you are idle, you must make mud bricks whether you have straw or no straw. The only thing they don't tell you in that story is the name of the Pharaoh. And the reason they don't do that is because it was their own Pharaoh who was urging his own people into making more mud bricks so he'd have his nice city on the east bank of the Nile. And that's why they don't tell you the name of the Pharaoh. So it wasn't an evil Pharaoh that was oppressing the Israelites. It was their own Pharaoh, their own boss, who was trying to lash the whip and get them to make more mud bricks. Um, that's where this story comes from. That's why it says in the um, book of Exodus, what does it say? Um, the king of Egypt, because remember Egypt was divided. <laughs> Akhenaten's father was still alive. He was Amen, uh, Amenhotep III. He was still alive and living up in northern uh, Egypt in the uh, Delta. Uh, and so it says in Exodus, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives um, who were called Shipra and the other was pure. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, the Israelite women, uh, and see them upon the birthing stools, if it is a son, then you will kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she will live. This is historical because Akhenaten had no sons. He had six daughters, but no sons. Why? Because Shipra and Pua killed all of the sons when they were on the birthing stools. It is real history that matches up with the biblical story. They are mm. one and the same. Um, and... And they both had a god that was called the Arten or the Arden, of course. Um, and so the, the, the Arten was a dawn god, I suppose. Um, there were three aspects of this god. Um, there was the Arten, which was the dawn, rising god, because Arten uh, means to, to rise 
is the rising god in the east. There was Artem, who was the god of the dusk, because tem means to disappear. Um, and then there was Amen, the one we're more familiar with, Amen, who was the god of the night, uh, Amen being darkness or invisibility. Um, so we have three aspects of this sun god. We have the Artem, the Artem, and the Amen. Is and there any reference, that... sorry, is there any reference with the Amen to the closing prayer? Yes. Amen? Yeah. It's directly... Um, um is directly comparable because that's the end of the day is amen yep. and that's why you would say it after a prayer and i imagine that akhenaten chose the Aten because it's full of hope for the dawn of the new day things are going to happen whereas if you're celebrating uh artem well that's that's the end of everything you know that's can be linked, as it were, to destruction and decay. It's the end of the day. And Amen is, is just everything is nighttime and fearful. So Amen is not necessarily the best mm. aspect of God to be worshipping. But Aten is the new dawn of a new day, a dawn of a new life, you know. And I presume that's probably why he chose that um, aspect of the sun god. Um, so, Ralph, uh, were they back were back then? Were they saying a woman as well to be inclusive? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah, you can't get away with anything today. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's gone a bit mad, hasn't it? Um, mm -hmm. But we we have a um, an account of this very event, which is the setting up of the um, city of Amarna, and. Um, this comes from Manetho, who's an Egyptian historian, 3rd century BC. Uh, and it comes to us via way of Josephus and Egyptus and various other people, because we've lost the text of Manetho, unfortunately. So it's only what other people commented on it, on it and copied it. Um, and he's talking about the history of Egypt. So this is not from the Bible. This is the history of Egypt. And it's talking about a contention between two pharaohs, as it were. Um, but it's linking them into the uh, biblical story because it names various people from the biblical story. Um, so it names that Moses was called Tisithen and Joseph was called Petaseph. Petam. Um, Seph means um, son of, so Petaseph means the son of Petar. <clears throat> Uh, with Petar being the, the god of um, architecture and uh, stoneworking. <coughs> and um, so it's saying that they were scribes of Egypt. And then it goes on to say that uh, the king um, cast all of these people into the um, stone quarries on the east bank of the Nile to work segregated from the rest of the Egyptians. Um, and among them were some of the learned priests uh, who had been attacked by leprosy. So this is when the 80,000 lepers and maimed priests were kicked out of uh, northern Egypt and had to set up um, a new place on the east bank of the Nile. Now, Josephus goes overboard with this and says, you know, 
priests are not allowed to be um, imperfect. So this is impossible. You cannot have maimed priests or leper priests. But he's being a bit stupid here because it's quite obvious that they're just saying that these are theological lepers. They're not real lepers. They are priests who had a different idea about a different God. And that's why they were being exiled to the east bank of the Nile. Now, who was the uh, pharaoh who was kicked out of Egypt and had to make a, a new city on the east bank of the Nile? He's talking about Akhenaten here. Uh, and it, we know this because it names the, the, the pharaoh that was doing this, which was uh, Amenhotep III, which, <laughs> who was the father of Akhenaten. So we know the era in which this uh, actually happened. <clears throat> and then it goes on to say that they were there on the east bank of the Nile for 13 years, which is about right. It's about the right amount of time for the um, establishment and life of Amarna. And then it says, um, when the men in the stone quarries had suffered hardships for a considerable time, they called them the stone quarries because all they were doing was, was quarrying stone to make this new city. Mud bricks and, and stones was all they were doing, quarrying this... Um, uh, all of this material. They begged their king, um, who would have been Akhenaten, of course, to assign them a dwelling place as a refuge, um, the deserted city of the shepherd kings, which was called Avarice, which we know as Pyramacy, of course, the city of the Exodus. Uh, and the king, Akhenaten, consented. Um, According to religious tradition, this city was from the earliest times was dedicated to Typhon, which is correct. You'll, you'll see loads of statues of, of Typhon, Seth, when you go up there. Um, so this is going back into the sort of Exodus story again. So what I, because we, we discussed the Exodus story before, which we, we said was to do with the Hyksos pharaohs of Egypt. But Manetho is clear that there was a great exodus and a small exodus. And I think the biblical story has, has somewhat conflated these two into one story. So the great exodus was the story of the Hyksos being thrown out of Egypt, which we've talked about previously. And the small exodus of 80,000 lepers and maimed priests was the exodus of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Because, of course, there is no evidence that Akhenaten and Nefertiti died in Amarna. You'll see, if you read historical books on Amarna, they'll say, oh, Akhenaten died there. Well, there is no evidence for that. His tomb was not finished. It didn't even have any um, magic bricks in it, which means it was never used uh, for a burial. Um, so Akhenaten goes missing. So does Nefertiti. Her tomb was not used either. Um, what happened to them? Well, it seems clear from Manetho, and remember this is a historical text that everyone is fairly sure is a proper historic, it's not mythology, it's, it's proper history, if you can interpret it properly. Manetho says that they went on an exodus. And so they didn't die in Amarna, they went off on an exodus. Um, 
And so where did they go to? Well, I think they probably went up towards perhaps Crete because there were there was a lot of um, connections between Egypt and Crete. We know this because the Amarna artistry, because remember, he not only changed the gods, he changed the artistic styles as well. Instead of having the formal artistry of uh, ancient Egypt, he went into this free-flowing naturalist artistic style, which was completely different to anything that had been done before in Egypt. And everyone says, you know, what a revolutionary pharaoh he was to have this, this new innovation in artistic styles. Well, it, it wasn't new at all. It was Minoan. It's exactly the same as if you go to Crete and have a look at uh, Minos. Um, the Minoan Empire had this same artistry. And there was a Minoan palace in, in northern Egypt. Uh, it was there because uh, the Minoans got um, semi-destroyed by the great eruption of Thera. And that's why a lot of their people were scattered throughout the Mediterranean. And I think that Akhenaten had a lot of connections with these Minoans, and that's where he got this artistic style from. So where would you go to if you were kicked out of Egypt? Well, one of the places you might go to is, is uh, Crete. Another place you might go to would be perhaps Greece, because Greece wasn't, um, uh, <clears throat> there was no classical Greece at this time. It was virtually sort of uninhabited sort of lands, as it were, um, not developed anyway, lands. You could go up to Greece. And I think another person who went up there, because we have this story about um, the exile of um, Danus, who went up to Argos, which is Greece. Danus was supposed to be a, let's get this right, Danus was the husband of um, an Egyptian princess, and he was exiled uh, up to Argos, which is Greece. And his name was Danus, and the Greeks became known as the Danoi. Mm. Um, and I think that was actually Pharaoh I, we will look at that in a minute, um, who was also exiled from Egypt. And I think Danus I went up to Greece and formed the Spartan society of the Greek Spartans, um, because he was kicked out of Egypt as well. So how did that happen? Well, we had the exile, which I, I, I do think that Akhenaten and Nefertiti were both exiled from Egypt, and they were told to go somewhere, and they went off. We have no evidence for where they went to. But we do have evidence of a later pharaoh. So after Akhenaten and Nefertiti, they went, the next pharaoh was Tutankhamun, and they went back to the old gods. So Tutankhamun was, was only eight years old, I think, when he became pharaoh. And obviously his, um, his guardians said, you must go back to the old gods. And so they abandoned the Aten and they went back to the old gods. And then he died early, and I became the next pharaoh now i hey, ralph real, real quickly ralph the time what's the time period around this 
about 1320 era, era, BC. Era. Okay. So, yeah, uh, 14th century BC. So this is quite early in terms of the rest of the civilizations that we know around the Mediterranean. This is still very early. There was no Greece in this era. There had been the Minoans because they had been active um, way back even 1600 BC. Mm -hmm. The Minoans were quite an empire. Uh, Greece would have been quite small. Um, there was no classical Greece at this time. That didn't arise until um, another four stroke 500 years later. <clears throat> so the next pharaoh was I, and he married Ankesanamun, who was the wife of Tutankhamun, and he became pharaoh. And he was kicked out of Egypt after only about four years because he went back to the old gods. He went, sorry, he went back to the Aten. So we had the Aten. They went back to the old gods under Tutankhamun. And then I brought back the Aten again. Now, the Aten was rather unpopular because Egypt had not fared very well under Akhenaten's reign. Um, and so, of course, a lot of people blamed Akhenaten for changing the gods. I tried to take them back to the uh, Aten again, and the people didn't like that, so he got kicked out of Egypt. Now, we have this, not from the history of this region, we have this from the history of the Scots and the Irish, funnily enough. Hmm. And this is called Scotty Chronicon which is the ancient history of the Scots. And it, this goes back quite a long way. I mean, Scotty Chronicon is, is um, 14th, century BC, uh, 14th century AD. Uh, the Labor Gabala from Ireland is 6th century AD. And they record the history of the Scots and the Irish. And it's quite detailed. And it's all about Achanaten funnily enough, which I found very strange because, of course, Akhenaten was the, um, the heretic pharaoh whose name had been cut out from every Egyptian text. So nobody knew about Akhenaten very much uh, until we started exploring his city in the sort of 19th century. And yet the Irish and the Scots knew all about Akhenaten. Now, a lot of the information they took came from Manetho, the same guy that we've been talking about, the Egyptian historian. Uh, but they seem to have understood it fairly well and linked it much more closely with the biblical texts and with Akhenaten, which if you read Manetho, it's not obvious that it's talking about Akhenaten at all. And so what these texts are saying and of course, a standard history will say it's all mythology. Ah, uh, it's just mythology. You know, there's no history in it. Yeah, there's lots of history in it because it copies Manetho, and Manetho is real history, and therefore there is real history within Scotty Chronicon. You know, um, so we can look at it and decipher it. And what it says is that Pharaoh I, because they call him. Um, do they call him Danus? Anyway, you can link him up with Pharaoh I, was kicked out of the country. He was kicked out of Egypt. But he wasn't just chased out of Egypt, um, you know, as a, 
uh, as a renegade or something. He was a god. He was, he was a pharaoh. He was a son of God. You couldn't just kick this guy out of Egypt. So they, they advised him to leave because the, the people were displeased with him. And so they gave him 60 ships, which were obviously quite large ships because you had to actually row out to them um, on a smaller ship to get to them. So these were quite large ships. Um, he was given 60 ships and told to go somewhere else. And so we have an exile, but a, an organized exile where you can take all of the people, the materials, um, all of the necessities of life with you on this exile. And we know what these ships look like because we have one of them. So this is why one of the reasons why we think they went up to Asia Minor and, um, uh, and Greece, because one of them sunk off the coast of um, Bodrum on the southwest coast of um, Anatolia. And it has everything in it. Now, if you go to Bodrum and have a look, it's very interesting because it's sitting in the castle there in, in Bodrum. Um, they will say it's a trading ship. Yeah, okay, possible. But this was, you know, when, when I think of a trading ship, I think of like a, a bulk carrier, you know. You carry one or two items. You're carrying wine or oil um, or, or maybe raw materials or something. This boat didn't have that. It had everything you could possibly imagine in it. Everything from the raw materials of uh, copper ingots, um, uh, bronze ingots, um, glass ingots of different colors for all of the glass you might need. Um, I, I don't know, fish hooks, um, uh, ostrich eggs, and all sorts of things. Everything you could possibly imagine for a new life was on this ship, which sunk off the uh, coast of, uh, yeah. uh, of um, Anatolia. And we know it was from this era because it had a, a ring, a gold ring of Nefertiti on it. So we're talking about the right sort of era. And so I think some of these refugees went up to Greece uh, and we have various texts which sort of uh, confirm that but in in uh, scottish history they say the majority of these ships went um, westwards and they went to spain first of all they went to the ebro river uh, which is on the east coast of spain and funnily enough the ebro i don't know if they knew about it before they went there but the ebro is an is a delta it's exactly the same as the nile delta so if you had farmers uh, and, you know, people who were familiar with living in a delta land, they would know exactly how to farm the Ebro Delta because it's, it's just a smaller version of the Nile Delta. So they went there for a number of generations. They also went to the Balearic Islands, which are just off the coast there of Spain, and set up a society there. And I track all of the similar... Uh, monuments that they set up. So they, they set up boat tombs. Now, who would be likely to set up a boat tomb? An upturned boat, made, made of stone, of course, but a boat tomb. 
it's likely to people be people who had been on a an exodus in a boat, and that's how they had escaped. And then it says a few generations later, because they were continuously attacked by the people who were in Spain. Uh, and although they won every single battle, they always lost one or two of their people and they didn't have enough people to lose. So a lot of them up sticks and went to Ireland. And they landed in the um, Dingle Peninsula. And of course, we have similar monuments in uh, Western Ireland, we have upturned boat tombs, exactly the same. And they're the same size. They use the um, Egyptian royal cubit in their measurement systems. So although historians will say all of the Scotty Chronicon is um, simple mythology, I think there's a lot of in information and evidence that points towards them being exiles from Egypt. And, it, uh, Ralph, real quickly, um, in terms of the Adam and Eve um, as Akhenaten and, and Nefertiti, are there are, is there anyone else that has come to that conclusion? Uh, any other historians, or is that uh, primarily just you? No, that this this is all my work. There is uh, there is no. I, I'm pretty confident there is no other historian that has linked up uh, Adam and Eve with. Um, Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Probably for the same reason I didn't touch this to start with either, because it just reads as, you know, complete mythology when you read it. And so what's the point of even mm -hmm. investigating when you know that it's all mythology? Yeah. Um, and so it takes a... It's, it's not a great leap of faith. It's a great deal of... Um, broad-minded vision about the information you're getting. You can't just pass all this off and say, oh, this is mythology, when you suddenly see lots of links towards Egyptian history. I mean, everybody has known that the hymn to the Aten um, is in Psalm 104 for, you know, 150 years or more. That's been obvious. Uh, and yet people still can't link it up with the biblical text. We had um, uh, Freud, Sigmund Freud, who wrote Mon Moses and Monotheism, who was linking uh, Akhenaten to the Exodus sort of story, uh, saying that there were many similar similarities between Akhenaten and the Israelites. Um, and that was, okay, that's, when was that? 1930s or something. Um, he was getting there, but still didn't see the links that could be drawn within the ex within the uh, Genesis story. And what I do is I go through the yeah. whole of the Genesis story and I try and retranslate it back into Egyptian from the Hebrew, because there there is another mm -hmm. there there is another forbidden thing that you're not allowed to say, which is that uh, Hebrew Aramaic is ancient Egyptian. It's a daughter language of Egyptian. And of course, um, Jews today will say that no, that's not impo that's impossible. You know, we brought our language down into Egypt. It's the Jewish language. It's nothing to do with Egypt. No, it's, it's very much to do with e Egypt. Um, I've got a, an academic text here which gives 
250, 300 words, um, which are the same. But the title of the book is uh, Hebrew Loan Words in Egyptian. And you think, well, hold on a minute. That's a bit presumptuous, isn't it? You know, who was the dominant society here? Even from the biblical uh, story, it was the Israelites who went down into Egypt as a small uh, section of society and lived in Egypt for 400 years. Now, how does this normally work? If an immigrant comes to America, do you learn Arabic or do they learn English? That's the way it works. That's what, how it's always worked with uh, small groups of people who um, move to another country. They learn the language of the dominant society. And we know this because some of the words are basic loan words. You know, number systems, bread, um, man, woman, all these sort of basic words. You don't change those words within Egypt. Um, if you have a a new technology, like you had, uh, I don't know what you could have, you know, iron, I suppose, because this was the Bronze Age. If you had iron, then of course, the Egyptians might copy that name you had for iron, because it's a new technology. But you don't change the, the fundamental basic words of Egypt just because you've moved there. So it's pretty obvious this book should have been called. Um, Egyptian loan words in Hebrew. And then I expanded on that because if you read uh, Wallace Budge, who made the first Egyptian dictionary, Egyptian hieroglyphic di dictionary, um, the way they translated uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, apart from the, you know, the, 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 the very start by Champollion, who was comparing the Rosetta Stone. Um, the way they persevered with this and found out all of the words, because, I mean, there's two volumes. There's a vast number of words here that they have um, uh, translated. They did it by comparing with Coptic, and, of course, Coptic is, is Hebrew, uh, with Coptic and Hebrew, and sometimes with Arabic. That's how they managed to translate the rest of the language of ancient Egypt because they are very similar languages. And of course, we know that they're going to be uh, similar languages because Joseph, him of the coat of many colors, he was prime minister of Egypt, second mm -hmm. only to Pharaoh. You don't attain that position uh, if you don't understand <laughs> the Egyptian language and all of the Egyptian customs and gods and everything else that goes with it. Same with Moses. Moses was the, was the chief army commander of the Egyptian army. And you won't get that from the Old Testament. That only comes from Josephus. So um, why should we rely on Josephus? Well, because Josephus, A, he was a historian, um, but B, he took the sacred books from the temple when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So he had the oldest Torah that we know of. It came from at least 600 BC, much older than any of the Torahs extant today. And from that, he wrote his antiquities, 
which is his own personal secular history of the Israelites, which parallels, of course, the biblical story. But is it's a secular story, it's not a religious story. And so he tells the same stories, of course. He tells the stories of the Exodus and Moses and everything. And he says that Moses was the chief army commander of the Egyptian army. And he went down and he fought a battle with the Nubians down in the south. And he defeated the Nubians. And then he married the uh, Nubian queen, who was called Tharbis. Okay, now from what we're talking about here, uh, it's axiomatic that Moses and um, Joseph would have spoken fluent Egyptian. And of course, all of their understanding of the Egyptian language would have flowed into his people as well. And doubly so if you go along with my idea that the Hyksos uh, were the Israelites, the Hyksos were those people who took over Egypt uh, circa about, well, I don't know, um, call it somewhere around 2000 BC, because the Hyksos spoke Egyptian in the end. I don't know if they did initially, because of, uh, of course, like the Israelites, they were said to be Semites who had come down from uh, Mesopotamia and lived in Egypt. But when we know most about them, you know, during the um, Hyksos Exodus era, they were speaking Egyptian. And so these uh, Hyksos Israelites, when they were kicked out of Egypt, they would have spoken Egyptian. And then when they came back again under Akhenaten, they came back with Yuya. Uh, Yuya was, um, uh, you'll, you'll have to look him up perhaps on Wiki. He was the father, the patriarch of the Amarna dynasty. He was called Yuya. Um, and of course, he was another ginger head. We were talking about gingers before. Yuya was, was ginger again. And he set up the Amarna dynasty. Um, it's very similar to the uh, Joseph story. Uh, the best book on this, I think it's called um, Stranger in the Valley of the Kings by Ahmed mm -hmm. Osman. And Ahmed Osman demonstrated, and I think he is correct, that Yuya is Joseph, him of the coat of many colors. There are so many links between the two. Um, but the bottom line here that we're talking about is that, of course, Yuya, Joseph, would have all spoken Egyptian. And so what I tried to do in my book, this is my book, uh, Eden in Egypt. Um, I did a translation of it. I made a dictionary, basically, uh, Egyptian Hebrew uh, dictionary. And then I went through the Genesis story and translated it back into Egyptian. because. It gives a slight difference because, of course, if you're translating it from another language, you can have a slightly different interpretation. If you go back to the original language, you can find some possibilities of what they were actually talking about, which make more sense um, of the Genesis story. Um, are there so are there any other um, links to some of the, I guess, popular aspects of the story, be it? Whether it's you mean Adam's rib or or even Abel and Cain, for example, have you found anything else in the, in that? No, I didn't find too many links with Abel and Cain. Um, 
although it, it does have similarities to the um, to the Seth and uh, Osiris story, because mm -hmm. Seth and Osiris had this same battle of the two brothers, uh, exactly the same as Cain and Abel. Um, but what I did find is, is that persevering on, there were many, many links between the names of the early pharaohs and some of the early patriarchs from the biblical story. Um, and we can take that right up to the um, almost to the era of the judges going into the United Monarchy. We talked about the United Monarchy, didn't we? I think last time. I forget. Um, but anyway, if you um, if you go up to the era of the judges, you've got this era of um, Israel just before the United Monarchy. Uh, when it was ruled by the judges, uh, who um, have great similarities with the Sea People invasion of Egypt. So again, it seems to be another slice of ancient history that has worked itself into the um, uh, into the Tanakh story, and <clears throat> we we can sort of tell this because things like um, quick history of the sea people. The sea people were a confederation of islands in the Mediterranean who suddenly thought it was a good idea to all get together and send a thousand ships to invade the greatest, um, <clears throat> the greatest nation in the Mediterranean basin, Egypt. So a thousand ships got together from all of the Mediterranean islands and they invaded Egypt, the greatest empire of the era, the most powerful empire of the era. Um, and they nearly defeated Egypt as well. They chased um, uh, Ramesses III all the way back down to Thebes. And Ramesses III had to pay them tribute. They were so successful, they took over Northern Egypt. And the question then has been, who on earth were the sea people? Why did they do this? Why, why did they suddenly think they could take over Egypt? Uh, this was circa 12th century BC. So after the Amarna era, after the Exodus era, we're talking for 450 years after the great Exodus. And it's been a total mystery to history ever since. Why did the sea people come and do this? My idea is that we had this exodus. We had the two exoduses out of Egypt. We had the great exodus um, of the Hyksos Israelites out of uh, Egypt. And then we had the smaller exodus of Akhenaten and his 80,000 maimed priests and lepers out of Egypt. And they all settled in these small islands across the Mediterranean. So now we have this advanced society with the knowledge of smelting and um, bronze making and later on iron making and so on, all scattered throughout the um, uh, Mediterranean islands, including Argos, of course, who were involved in this because 
one of the uh, chief um, one of the chief contingents of the uh, sea people were the Danoi again. Remember, we were talking about the Danoi, the um, the Greeks. Um, they were a part of the uh, sea people invasion, including Sardinia uh, and Corsica and all of these other islands from uh, around the Mediterranean. The reason I think they did this was because these were exiles from Egypt. Okay, they'd been in these islands for like 400 years, but their homeland was still Egypt, and they probably had memories and stories, uh, mythologies about them being in Egypt. And that's why they got together and decided to invade Egypt. And they did very successfully, and they took over the whole of the Eastern uh, Mediterranean with the sea peoples who were not rustics from, you know, Mediterranean islands. They were great bronze workers. You know, um, we, we know they had high technology in these small islands. The similarity with the um, biblical story is that the era of the judges seems to be very similar. So the names of a lot of the judges appears very similar to a lot of the sea people pharaohs after they had taken over Egypt. Um, and the description of their battle is the same as well. So if you look at the temple of uh, Ramesses III down in Thebes, and he gives his account of the sea people invasion, um, he said that the uh, sea people came with fire before them when they attacked the Egyptians. And it goes on and on with this big long story about the invasion. And if you look in the um, uh, story of the judges, it gives even more details about what I think is this very, very same battle. So when the Israelites attacked, um, they had burning brands in pots. So it's giving even more detail than the, the Egyptian side of the story. And so this was a midnight attack. And when they came upon the encampment of, of the enemy, they broke their pots so you could see the fire within them. And then they advanced with fire before them. It sounds very much like the same battle uh, and the same um, story. So all the way through this Old Testament story, we seem to be seeing elements of this same group of people the Hyksos. And Akhenaten would have been a son of the Hyksos because they came back into Egypt as per the Joseph story. They came back into Egypt uh, and resettled those lands, just the same as Amenhotep III, Yuya, and Akhenaten did. Um, it appears we've got the full story of, of the Hyksos peoples, all the way from uh, the initial Hyksos invasion, circa 2000 BC, all the way through to the United Monarchy, 1000 BC. We seem to have a thousand years of Hyksos history, all contained within the um, uh, biblical story. So it's, it's quite interesting. Hmm. I want to... Um, broaden this and ask you a bit more of a, of a general question, if you don't mind. 
why do you think um, the Bible was, from your perspective, compiled in the first place and 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 preserved? Well, it was it was the day book. Um, apparently, within Egypt, they kept like the Jews do, like the Israelites, they kept assiduous uh, records of of their um, their life. And in mm-hmm. Egypt, this was known as the day book, <clears throat> which was the diary, I suppose, of the royal court and all of the uh, events of that royal court, both international and domestic and, and petty as well you know, with what's happening in the royal court. And I think this is just a record of that. And so somebody kept this this record. It was passed down through the ages. It was added to as more information came in in later eras. And it eventually turned itself into the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Um, It was changed somewhat because the... Israelites were kicked out of Israel. They were, well, they were kicked out of Egypt, of course. But even when they had been in, um, because they eventually ended up in Judea after these exoduses from Egypt, they did end up in uh, Judea. But they were then invaded by the Babylonians and taken off on the Babylonian exile, circa sort of 600 BC. Well, now they were stuck in in Babylon, and that's when a lot of this material was was becoming uh, composed and written down in its final form. And so from the perspective of the people sitting in Babylon, everything in Egypt became evil. That was the cause of all of their downfalls. And so you you have all of this... um, negativity about Egypt. It was all Egypt's fault. You know, um, That's why I think it was written in this fashion, because they wanted to someone to blame for their misfortune, that they had been pharaohs of Egypt. They'd been pharaohs of Egypt under the Hyksos, under Akhenaten, and under the united monarchy of, of, of David and Solomon, who I say lived in the Nile Delta at Tanis. Um, and on each occasion, their rule had come to an end and they'd been exiled. So they'd had three misfortunes when they had uh, fallen from positions of great power and great wealth. And who was to blame for this? Boy, it was the Egyptians. It was the evil Egyptians, you know. And so that's when the... Tanakh in its final form was was composed when during the Babylonian exile, and that's the book that we have today because that's the book that Josephus was using when he wrote his version of the Tanakh, which is called Antiquities. Uh, and yeah, so we've had the same text and the same commentary uh, for the last two thousand six hundred years, and it's close to the truth but it's not the real truth because they didn't want to admit that they had actually been in control of these regions as pharaohs of Egypt, because that's a difficult sell. You know, you want to keep your people together as, um, as a society. And how do you sell the fact, well, we were powerful, but 
but we were defeated and kicked out of the country. <clears throat> That's not a very easy sell to your people to keep them um, together as a co cohesive unit. The way you do it is you sell misfortune. Oh, it was nothing to do with us. We got kicked out because of these evil Egyptians. And that's why we, we had this downfall. It's because you didn't, um, you didn't keep the, um, uh, the covenant with God and the Egyptians took advantage of that and they kicked us out of the country. That's a much easier mm. sell. You, you see this all the time today uh, with um, Muslims will do it all the time. Every misfortune in Islam is always to do with the West. It's nothing to do with Islam and the incompetence of Islam of running a society, which is demonstrably true that they are often incompetent because they have, um, um, what do you call it when everything is predestined? Anyway, let's call it predestiny. Everything is predestined in Islam and God will provide everything. So why bother working? Your life is predestined, so you can't change it. So there's no point working harder because you can't change your life. And God will look after you anyway, even if you sit on your doorstep every day and do nothing. So what's the point? And it breeds a lethargic society, which is what we've seen mm -hmm. through the whole history of, of Islam. When they don't have a slave population to do all the work for them, which they had during the golden age of Islam, because um, the golden age of Islam is a complete lie. Uh, the people who did the work were always the unbelievers. It was the, the Jews, the Christians, the um, Sabaeans, and everybody else who were the, um, uh, the Kufr unbelievers who paid the jizya tax. And the whole society ran on that jizya tax from the unbelievers. Um, and so when they ran out of unbelievers, of course, society collapsed, which is exactly what happened in most of these Eastern countries. But what's their response to that? They say, oh, well, it's, it's, it's the fault of the West. It's the fault of the Crusades. It's the fault of, it's the fault of everybody except ourselves. Um, you even see that in you know, modern society. Um, I don't want to get too political, but you know, the aspirations of BLM. Um, it's nothing to do with them. It's always other people. It's not the fact that there's any faults in, in our particular um, slice of society. We have no faults at all. It's all because of other people. Um, so that's a guaranteed way of establishing a group, a society, is by blaming other people and playing the victimhood card. And that's exactly what they did with the Old Testament. Um, they're playing the victim card, not giving the full truth because the full truth goes against that, that they were powerful people within Egypt. But I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious by looking at the historical data. Um, <clears throat> and that was the formation of the Tanakh. And now it's in 85% of the... Um the hotel bedside <laughs> tables. Yes, this, this, this chap called Gideon went around every single hotel in the world, dropping the 
his book off, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it's become very, very successful. But that is, of course, courtesy of, of a new offshoot, the Christian offshoot. Um, that's not the uh, Tanakh as such. It's mm -hmm. certainly not in, written in, in Hebrew. Um, but yes, it's become a very, very successful story. And a lot of these bandwagons do become, if it's the right sort of bandwagon, it does become very successful. Um, and it's strange that it became successful in two different formats. So the, the Israelite Hebrew uh, format was very self-contained. You had to be um, a Jew in order to be a part of that society. Mm -hmm. So that limited the number of people who could be in that society. And it was successful because they stayed together as a group and they were assiduous record keepers and they kept the story of the history of their people. And then it went across to the Christians who opened this up to anybody, as we said before, courtesy of Saul, who became the um, apostle to the Gentiles and broadened this out to the whole of the Roman Empire. And it became successful for them, A, because they had more numbers, which helped, but also because it became a very, I think, well, you might argue about this, but I think it became a much more personal God. Um, this was no longer the art and looking after the people. Um, the source of all energy on earth, um, maintaining society. The Christian God became very personal. It was a humanoid God who was now looking after you. So this God would now look after uh, you, your family, your, you at your work, uh, you when you went for an exam, you know, uh, at school, it would be God that was looking after you, not all of the other people in the class. It would be God looking after you. And I think this personalization of God became very successful. People like that. They want some strange force that's looking after me. Not my friend, because we're both in competition for the same job. You know, there's five of us um, in the interview room, uh, but God is going to look after me, not those other people. It became yeah. a, a very find. selfish religion. Yeah. That's what I always find amazing. Like, uh, you know, I follow sports throughout my life and the winning team and they're thanking God. And I'm sure there's <laughs> people on the losing team who were praying to God, but they lost. So someone explained that to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. But the, the end result was that it became very successful. And that's yeah. why we have Gideon Bibles in, in every single hotel, even when I go abroad to, you know, the Middle East and so on, you'll still see a Gideon Bible sitting around there. Um, they normally supplement them with the Quran as well when you go across there. But yeah, um, a, a hugely successful uh, bandwagon, I like to call them, um, because there's no compulsion. You're not made to go and do this. Um, it's just open to you. But if we present a nice enough sort of story, then people jump on that bandwagon. Yeah. For whatever reason, because it sounds nice, it makes them look virtuous. Um, it may well help them as they think 
within you know work society their family and everything else and so people jump on this bandwagon mm -hmm. hmm. so where did we get to on adam and eve did we cover all of the points i think on adam and eve <laughs> Um, this is an Egyptian story. It's a story of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Um, they were a very successful cult that came out of Egypt, and they've kept themselves together um, as a cohesive little society and spread their information and their beliefs uh, to the, the, the people of the West. It's been very, very successful. And so you'll get, I always find it very strange, but you'll get a Chinaman in China whose main belief is in a Jew from Judea. And you think, what on mm. earth has that got to do with China? You know, <laughs> why, why have you got into this, you know, belief system but they do you know across the world they find it fascinating and they they join it but it really doesn't have much to do with their society but they join it nevertheless mm -mm. it's been very successful yeah it's it's pretty wild to think like the kind of stranglehold that some of these stories have on people's psyches and they they live and die you know, I mean going through this entire process of being subservient to to, to what are merely stories and what I find that comes about, you mean, from, from the conversations with you, just it kind of dilutes that, you know what I mean? That, 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 that stigma that this is something that is, you mean, to, to, to be beholden on, on, on some level, which so many people carry, so many people are so scared of blaspheming and even questioning any of the concepts of, 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 of these stories, you know? Um, but yeah, I guess pe people need to pretend like they, they're sitting on some kind of truth, like there's something known, you know, that they can um, rely upon. Well, there's yeah. always been a degree of compulsion with these um, groups, of course. If yeah. you left early Judaism, I mean, it doesn't apply now, but if you read Leviticus, um, it does say if, if one person in your town changes the, their religion, you must kill everybody in that town. So there was a degree of compulsion uh, within early Judaism. There was during early Christianity. Uh, yeah. If you didn't believe in the right version of Christianity, never mind that you were still a Christian, but you didn't have the right version, um, you could be burnt at the stake. That's why we had people like Bloody Mary, um, who was a queen, queen of England, uh, who took over after Henry VIII, and she tried to convert the nation back to Catholicism. And as a part of her conversion, she burnt about 70 people at the stake, burnt them alive. That's a degree of compulsion. And it wasn't until she died and we had Elizabeth I, who was a Protestant, that everything calmed back down again. And we had a very um, profitable era within um, British society. It was very wealthy. It was. Um, uh, it, it, it was um, a lot of the grand buildings we still have come from the sort of Elizabethan era. It was uh, very successful. <clears throat> but there was always this degree of compulsion. And of course, there is within Islam. 
there yeah. are still nations today in Islam where if you an apostate to Islam, the punishment is death. Mm. And I think even Pakistan is one of those one of those regions where the punishment for leaving Islam is death. So there is a degree of compulsion always within these religions. Once they get going and they get enough people on this bandwagon, <clears throat> they want to keep this bandwagon going. Well, I think you see it even in you know modern society, you could say more secular, if you don't follow the mainstream narrative, especially in the medical establishment, you know, you're burned at the stake, so to speak, as well. Yes, you are. Yes, that, that's been happening a lot recently. It's, it's getting worse, I have to say. We, mm-hmm. we didn't, I didn't notice this in my youth so much. This has only come in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, cancellation culture is, is the same uh, as burning people at the stake. Um, it's not quite so dramatic, but it's fairly dramatic on your own household. Of course. I mean, there are people who have lost their jobs, their houses, their wives. I was reading someone recently, just a, a couple of days ago, um, who had been kicked out and he had lost everything. Uh, one of our comedians um, in Britain, she lost everything. She lost her house, her family, her bank accounts were closed. Every, she ended up on the streets because of council culture. Now she's managed to drag herself back up again and, and become um, fairly successful. But for a while, she was, she was out. There was no one would even host her um, mm-hmm. for her comedy routines. So, yeah, that's almost as bad as getting burnt at the stake. Not quite so painful, but the effects are very much the same. If you find yourself living in a bus stop. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. End, end of life. If you get burned at the stake, I mean, it doesn't last painful, but it doesn't last as long as what's happening right now where entire careers and families and yes. going for years. You know, maybe you get like 10, 15 minutes being burned at the stake and it's all over. But Yeah, we, we have people like, I don't know if people are aware of all these things, but we have people like uh, Professor Ridd, Peter Ridd in, in Australia. Uh, he was a barrier reef scientist, professor, been doing it for many decades. And he stood up and said, actually, a lot of the um, papers that you are writing within his own institution, uh, which was the um, JCU, I think it was the um, James Cook University in Australia, uh, are either Mm. inadequate because there's been inadequate controls and peer review, or they're downright fraudulent. And he pointed out all of the data which was actually incorrect data. Um, and what did they do? They sacked him. And he complained about being sacked, so they took him to court. And that's been going backwards and forwards in the courts now for, uh, for years. And, but he lost everything. Now, he wasn't quite so badly affected because he was coming up to retirement. <clears throat> and that's part of the reason why he did it because he was fairly secure in his position and he was coming up to retirement. But the reaction was to dismiss him. Now, think of that as a young professor just starting out on your career. You could not take those Mm -hmm. risks. So you could not stand up to your institution and say, actually, a lot of the papers you're producing are actually incorrect. 
because you'll lose everything. We had it in Britain as well, um, where a professor who was the greatest, the most popular ecologist we had in Britain. And uh, he was kicked out. So he was on the BBC making all of these BBC films. He was kicked out of the BBC just for mentioning the fact that uh, wind turbines might have some problems. And he lost everything. Again, he was at the end of his career, so he didn't mind too much, but he still lost everything. He, he lost his job. He lost his position. He lost his voice to the people because I think he was making very valid points. He was talking about the intermittency of turbines, uh, the amount of energy it takes to actually make these things. And are they actually valuable? <clears throat> and how much backup do you need in order to make them work? Um, you know, for every turbine you make, you need to make a backup storage system. Otherwise, there's no point having it. And for saying those obvious truths, he was kicked out of the BBC. So this has been happening time and time again. I can probably name 20 or so of professors who have been kicked out of their institutions uh, for telling the truth. And so, yes, we, we yeah. do have coercion within, uh, within academia. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, a, a subset of collectivism, really. I mean, the, the, the premise of I mean, Ayn Rand's masterpieces were pretty much based on cancel culture, if you, if you want to look at it through, through a different lens, you know. This is, this is I mean... This, this, is, this is the problem, like, how do you, you know, how, how do you try to be authentic in an incredibly inauthentic society and still, you mean, may maintain property rights and, 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 and independence should that society um, come for you, you know? Oh, but yes. yes. It's, it's very it's, difficult. Guess, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm the only person or one of a very few who can actually do this research. Because I'm independent. Yeah. I've never been associated with an academic institution upon which I will de be dependent for my career, my job, my money, my house, my yeah. wife, my everything. Um, <clears throat> dependent on that uh, academic institution. I'm completely independent. I've always had an independent uh, income, which is a bit of a pain because I can't do a lot of my research sometimes because I have to do you know, other work in order to earn money but it does make me completely independent of all of this pressure although i have to say some of the pressure yeah. has been uh quite dire at times what they what they try and do is is catch you on something else so rather than looking at your work and actually criticizing your work they'll go back into well you've seen it before with council culture they go back into your history and say well did you see this did you say that yeah, you know the archives yeah absolutely trawl the archives and desperately try and find something you said that might be controversial um yeah they're always doing that but i've managed to withstand those assaults uh i've been completely independent of them trying to cancel me and so i can continue doing this research so there's a lot of people out there that don't like the truth because it interferes too much with their belief system, their institution, whatever it happens to be, their political beliefs, their religious beliefs. And the, so their bank accounts. 
Yeah, their natural reaction is to try and cancel you. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. And like what what they don't realize though is that you mean they're, they're just shooting their own progress in the foot because at the end of the day, you know what I mean? A, a shackled mind, it cannot progress, it cannot grow. You're the only probably one of the only people within quote unquote academia or, or, or history that actually has the freedom to think without without having to to question what 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 paths they they go they go down, you know. And and also I've had a, a very <clears throat> independent upbringing as well, which has helped. Um, I was reading uh, Ehrman recently. Uh, what's his Christian name? I forget what his name is now. Um, mythicist uh, theologian, Ehrman, and he writes several books. And mm -hmm. so I, I've never really read him before, but everyone kept saying, oh, you must read Ehrman. And I was fairly disappointed because he has the problem that he was brought up within a religious institution. He went to yeah. seminary and therefore, mm -hmm. <clears throat> even though he's changed his mind, his, his early life was indoctrination by Christianity. And as I read through his book, which was supposed to be a book on, on, on mythicism, um, supposedly from an, an atheist perspective, all I was seeing was an ex-priest writing because he, his whole work had been tainted by the fact that he had been a priest. And, you know, I've never had that within my um, education and upbringing. And so I bring, a, I would say, much fresher eyes onto the problem. I don't look at this problem from a religious perspective. I, I look at it from a very historical perspective. And I think that's helped me in, in discovering who these people are, because I have no dog in this fight. I, I, I don't care who these people are eventually when I find them. Um, and so if a story comes up that is similar, I can go and research it quite happily. And I think that's why I found these truths that other people have missed, because some of them are so obvious, it's untrue. As I was saying about the um, great exodus of the Hyksos, that is so obvious, it's untrue. And I don't know why nobody else seems to have mentioned it before. Uh, and I, I think I told you before, when we tried to put it into Wiki, the amount of troubles we had trying to put this information into Wiki. And all I wanted to do is, is put a, a two-line quote from Josephus, which demonstrates that Josephus Flavius thought the um, uh, Hyksos were the Israelites. And it was just deleted time and time again. We had to go through about six months of playing around with Wiki before we could get this uh, quote actually put into Wiki. Um, because it's controlled by gatekeepers. And if, if your thoughts and ideas are different to the gatekeepers, your information will not get in there. Yeah. Wiki is not a trusted source. Yeah. Well, I want to... Um share this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes by Steinbeck, and I think it represents what we're talking about. I think it represents the path you've taken, and even Joel and myself with, with our podcast, like really wanting to, to be able to explore all different types of subjects. And the quote is this, and this I believe that the free exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world, and this I would fight for. The freedom of the mind to take any direction it wishes 
undirected. And uh, I think it's really important. And I think it's lost on, on, uh, on an education. And if, if anything, I say to the parents out there to be able to instill this in the children uh, is very important. Yeah, it's, it's become lost from education. Um, education has become very partisan because it became a government institution. And therefore, you're mm -hmm. dependent on that institution for your, <clears throat> for your salary, for your life, for your home, for your career, for your future. And therefore, the institution now has more control over you, whether you are the student or whether you are the tutor. Um, you are still being controlled by the institution and the people who control that. That's why I like going back to the Victorian uh, researchers. I find their um, their views and their research to be much more valuable than any recent research. Um, a, they, they took it as a career, so they did this job um, 24 hours a day sort of thing. It wasn't um, just a job for them quite often. B, a lot of them were independent, so they were independently wealthy. That's how they were able to go to college, because you had to be very rich in those days to go to college. And they were independently wealthy, and therefore they were not beholden to the college, the institution, academia, and they could do whatever research that they pleased. And that made them independent, and that, I think, um, gave them a much better view of, of history. The only thing you have to be careful with is they were much more Christian. And so you'll get this Christian bias runs through their research. But if you look through that Christian bias, you will find a lot much better information from the Victorian uh, historians than, than modern historians, um, which is sad that academia has regressed, but unfortunately it has. Yep. Ralph, um, is there anything that you'd like to leave our audience with um, before we wrap this one up? Uh, no, I think we've been through quite a lot. Um, just, um, just, just a note to you know, uh, keep your mind open to the possibilities. It's it's difficult now because of uh, the internet has so much rubbish on it. You have to be very careful in sifting or winnowing, you might say, the, the wheat from the chaff. There's an awful lot of chaff out there. Um, so you have to be careful about what you're reading online. Take it in. See if it's reasonable. If it's not reasonable, if it has nothing to uh, back it up, then perhaps reject it until you can find any more information. Um, so, yeah, you've got to be careful about what you read and take on. But the information is out there. Um, <clears throat> don't get sucked into any of these bandwagons that are going around. There are an awful lot of them, especially from academia. Um, so be independent and um, decide for yourself. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you what happened 2,000 years ago. I can only give you pointers to what I think is the truth. And then you have to evaluate it yourself and, and see what you seem is most reasonable but i think my information is is pretty reasonable and it's backed up by the history i was just writing on on wiki um 
no, not Wiki, on uh, Facebook before uh, we came on this, about the many names of Jesus, because a lot of people have been mm. criticizing me for having too many names uh, for Jesus and explaining why that should be so, because the guy was banned from history and therefore you've got to use pseudonyms. Um, but at the bottom of that uh, little um, article I put on there, I said that, look, this, this information I'm giving you is explanatory. And that's always a good indication of whether you are on the right road to a historical truth that explains things that you did not understand before. And I've done that in the Old Testament many times in my books. And this was just one article, one little pointer within the New Testament that I'm on to something with these explanations, uh, which is that it explains the um, parable of the uh, vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner is, uh, is a parable about uh, uh, Jesus is telling this. And he's saying, um, a landowner, a vineyard owner, plants a vineyard and then goes away to another country and rents out the vineyard to a farmer, a tenant farmer. And then a year goes by and he writes to the um, tenant farmer and he wants his rent for his lands. And the tenant farmer refuses. And he sends down his um, uh, servants to go and get the money and the tenant farmer um, stones them and kills them and the bottom of this particular parable is what shall we do to these wicked tenant farmers we should kill them and you've got to think hold on a minute what's what's the um pauper prince of peace the man of the people doing championing the the rights of absentee farmers to get their rents from their lands you know what's that got to do with jesus well it only makes sense if you have the jesus character as the royal character who i said he was uh the king of odessa because um the parable only works if you replace uh the landowner with the king of odessa and the tenant farmer as being the romans who were on his lands. And so what, what he was saying, it's quite obvious what he was saying, is these are my, my lands and I've sent my people down to get my rent from the Romans. And the Romans refused to pay any rent <coughs> for being on my lands, which was uh, the lands of Syria and Judea. And so what should we do to these wicked tenants who won't pay their rent? We should kill them. It was a call to arms against the Roman invasion of Syria and Judea. And that's what the parable was trying to say. <clears throat> so the explanations I'm giving actually make sense of things which were totally inexplicable before. And when you can do that with a theory, when a theory becomes predictive and it makes sense of things which never made sense before, then I think we can assume that it's probably on the right track. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it, really. Keep your eyes and ears open and see if you can see for yourself what the truth is. Oh, yeah. 100% concur with that message. 
Guys, thank you so much for listening. I'm going to put all Ralph's links in our show notes, his website. We can grab his books and um, research for yourself a little bit deeper. Ralph, thanks for being here for the truth once again, my friend. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Thanks, Joel. Yorismus. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with